Good morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 12 today. Acts 12, 1 through 25. If you've been uh, following along with us, you know we've been going through Acts for the past few months. And as we go through Acts, uh, we see the gospel continuing to go out. We kind of follow a few different storylines through Acts. Two weeks ago, uh, we saw Peter go to the home of Cornelius, a Gentile. And we see God reveal it to Peter that he's engrafting the Gentiles into his people. Uh, into his family. Last week, uh, we looked at the story of Saul and Barnabas, uh, and we see how the Spirit was at work in the early church. Kevin pointed out six signs of the Spirit at work in the church. If you haven't listened to last week's sermon, I can't recommend it enough. It's well worth your time to go back and listen to it. Today, uh, we circle back around to Peter's story, and we find him uh, in a bit of a predicament. He's been imprisoned uh, as there's a second wave of persecution breaking out in Jerusalem. So that in mind, let's turn our attention to God's word. Acts 12, verses 1 through 25. says this, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door, guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off of his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angels real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came and answered, Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers of what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered they should be put to death. Then he went down from from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of God and not of man. 
Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is the word of the Lord. May he use it this morning to convict us, to comfort us, and to conform us into his image. Amen. So, um, when we were getting married, uh, Kaylee and I decided it was time for premarital counseling leading up to the wedding, of course. And uh, we had just, uh, I was still in college. She was already living in Clanton. And I had started working here that summer. And so, we decided, you know, of course, Kevin and Rebecca are going to do our premarital counseling. And... So we started premarital counseling. Kevin kind of laid it out the front end, like, hey, the, the expectation here with premarital counseling is I'm not out to fix every issue you're going to experience in marriage, right? And that's a good, good thing to go ahead and state on the front end because we're all pretty jacked up people, and there's no way to cover that, right? You don't know what's going to come up until you're married. So, uh, so basically, Kevin's goal in premarital counseling, he said, was to unearth the expectations we each had going into marriage. Um, and, and we know that this is important because we all go into marriage with expectations, right? And the problem with our expectations is not that we have expectations. The problem is that typically we don't realize we have expectations until something doesn't go our way and we respond really poorly. Um, so we go in, you know, having expectations about small things like, all right, you know, if we cook dinner tonight, do we clean the kitchen immediately before we go to bed or do we pile those things in the sink? and then get up and clean it tomorrow, right? Small things we have expectations about. Then we also have expectations about bigger things. How are we going to manage our money? Where are we going to live? Uh, you know, so on and so forth. And so, um, plot twist, Kevin missed one expectation. I didn't know that I had this one. Uh, so we, it's first year of marriage. Uh, and I'm trying to, I can't remember the exact reason what, what we were doing, but someone was coming over to our house. And Kaylee tells me, hey, I'm going to clean the house before they come over. All right, now, if you know me, you know that I'm a little bit uptight about cleaning. All right, I, I like things done a certain way. And so, typically, I'm the one that sees the mess, and I'm going to clean for the most part. All right, um, so she says, I'm going to clean, and I'm dying inside because I'm thinking she's not going to do it the way I want it done. Now, I'm way over it. All right, if it gets clean, it's just clean. Uh, but at the time, that was not the case. So, um, so she, she starts cleaning, and our first house kind of went in a, you know, had a little bit of a loop to it. So she's making her way around the house, straightening up and cleaning and dusting. And then she stops because she realizes I've gotten pretty quiet. And she backtracks and she finds me cleaning behind her. All right. You can imagine that did not go well. And I made it worse. Um, go figure. Um, she, she, uh, she said, what are you doing? And what I meant to say was, this is not the way we were raised to clean. And what I said was, that's not the way my mom did it. You can imagine, all right? Took a little time for that not to weave its way into arguments. All right, that was a, that was a major strike. Uh, and I know you think that my wife at like 4'10 and 90 pounds up here is, you know, really sweet and probably would never get angry. It's not the case. Um, it's always a justified anger, of course, but... Um, but she was, she was not happy. All right. Uh, but in that moment, I realized there was an expectation that I had there about how I was going to clean the house and how we were going to clean the house. And I didn't realize I had that expectation until it wasn't met. Right. And when the expectation wasn't met, 
I responded very, very poorly, very unwisely. All right, but our life is not much different when it comes to the Christian life, right? As believers, we have expectations for how we think our lives ought to go and how we think the world ought to work. And again, the problem is not having expectations. The problem is that we really don't realize that we have them until they're not met. When we don't get the promotion we're expecting, when that prayer request isn't answered, when sickness comes, when the world seems to get crazier by the day and it doesn't meet our expectations, all of a sudden our expectations are revealed by our response, right? How do we respond to those things? Typically we respond... Um, by either hanging our head, puffing out our chest in anger, or wringing our hands with anxiety. We respond very poorly, and it reveals the expectations we had going in. Now, fortunately for us, the Bible does not sugarcoat the realities of life. God is very frank with us about what we can expect out of our life and what we can expect out of the world. If you ever meet someone who's, um, who's a really mature Christian, walk with the Lord a long time, uh, there is a sort of deep settledness and peace about someone who's walked with the Lord for a long time. Uh, you know, when, when things don't go their way, they, they don't fly off the handle, and they also don't turn into Eeyore, right? They, they just sort of stay pretty calm, cool, and collected. And this is really one of the things that I think is just such a huge benefit of having older saints in the church. Uh, it doesn't always require age, but it certainly helps, right? People who have walked with the Lord for a long period of time seen God prove his faithfulness time and time again, and had their expectations of life shaped by God's word. There's just a peace about them. There's a settledness about them. And I don't know about you, but I really want to be that kind of Christian. Uh, To use a biblical phrase, I want to be sober-minded. I don't want to be angry. I don't want to be depressed. I don't want to be anxious. I want to be sober-minded when things don't go my way. And so we're coming to a passage this morning that I think sort of sets the expectations for our life a little bit. It tells us what we can expect out of our life and out of the world and what we're going to encounter. And if we will open ourselves up to God's Word and allow Him to shape our expectations, shape the way that we see the world, He can give us a kind of wisdom that goes with the grain of what He's doing in the world instead of trying to buck against it. And when we do that, there's a deep peace that can set in there. And so three things I want us to, to take away this morning, three things that should frame our reality. Number one, we should not be surprised by opposition. Number two, we need to see that prayer is vital. And lastly, we need to see that God is on the move. We shouldn't be surprised by opposition. Prayer is vital and God is on the move. So let's start with that first point there, that we shouldn't be surprised by opposition. When you look at chapter 12, right here in verse 1, we're introduced to a man named Herod right off the bat. There's a lot of people called Herod in the New Testament, so which one are we dealing with here? This is Herod Agrippa. This is the grandson of Herod the Great, the nephew of the the Herod that tried Jesus before his execution. Um, When Herod was four years old, his grandfather, Herod the Great, had his father killed. So you think your family has problems. Um, And at the age of four, he sees his father die and gets sent to Rome to be educated. And while he's there, he ends up befriending two people. Um, you might have heard of them. It's Claudius and Gaius. Right? So if you remember back to your freshman world history class, those are two emperors of Rome. And so they end up each having a stint on the throne as emperor of Rome. 
And during that stint, they reward their childhood friend and give him a lot of territory to rule over, including the title king. So Luke addresses him rightly here. At this point, Herod Agrippa is the ruler of Judea. And so Herod somehow maintained a decent level of popularity with the people. Uh, and, and he did this through a couple of different means. Number one, uh, we know that Herod observed the Jewish laws just enough to keep the people happy. He was very good at pandering to his constituents. Um, we see over here in verse, uh, verse 3, verses 2 and 3, uh, that when he arrested Peter, Herod uh, basically held off the execution and the trial because it was during the days of the unleavened bread. Right? It was during Passover. Well, Jewish law forbid trials and executions during Passover. So Herod knew when he was around the Jewish people that he needed to keep just enough of the law to keep them happy. But that's not the only way that he endeared himself to the Jews. The other way that he endeared himself to the Jews was by persecuting the church. We see in verse one, or excuse me, verse two, that he had already killed James, the brother of John, one of the inner three in Jesus' group. He's killed James by the sword, and now, seeing that it pleased the Jews, he moved on and arrested Peter with plans to execute him as well. Now we're going to talk about the rest of this story because there's a lot there, but. If we're going to have right expectations for life, the first thing that we need to see is that opposition is just going to be a reality for the church of God. Look right here, right? If, we, if Herod killed or was planning on killing Peter because it pleased the Jews, let's ask the question, why? Why did it please the Jews for James to be killed and so much so that Herod decided it was good for an encore? Why? Why did it please the Jews? Bear in mind that back in Acts chapter 2, when we see a picture of the early church, we don't see a hostile crowd. Uh, we, we see a crowd that's giving generously to take care of one another. Sick people are being healed. Right? There, there is a, a real sense of joy that is taking place in this community, so much so that outside people want in. Why in the world, then, do the Jews want to see these people executed? First and foremost, think back to the charge often brought against Jesus during his ministry, namely that he was a blasphemer. Right? This was when Jesus came and basically said, Hey, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ. He's equating himself with God. He's saying, I'm I'm the anointed one, right? And so for a devout Jew, this would have been blasphemy. It would have been a perversion of their religion. And we saw when they stoned Stephen, and Stephen confronts them with the message of the gospel. Not only was this a perversion to them of their religion, but it was also a threat to Judaism. Right? So they, they had lots of reasons to want Christianity extinguished. And if that wasn't enough to irritate the Jews, then we get a report back that Peter's going and fraternizing with the Gentiles, claiming that Gentiles are heirs of the covenant promises of God, that it's not just the Jews. So there was some animosity there. And so this simply gave Herod another opportunity to win some points with his constituents. Now, if that's the form that opposition took in first century Jerusalem, how does that explain the opposition since? Right? We've seen opposition throughout the centuries in the church, and it's not always by the sword. At times it is. At other times it's by ridicule. People like Voltaire tried that. By fabrications of false gospels by the arrogant neglect of modern secularism, right? The, the gospel has endured assault, 
It's, it's endured confrontation. It's endured opposition. And underneath that, here's what we need to see, is that regardless of whatever form opposition takes against the church, we need to realize there's actually a deeper reality at play there. If you look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 4, Paul is looking at the state of humanity apart from Christ. And he says that the world is basically entrapped in their own sin and also under the influence of Satan. And we need to realize that that's an ever-present reality for us, that regardless of what form it takes, as long as sin and Satan are around, there is going to be opposition that the church faces. It's a reality. And so for us as the church, we don't need to be blindsided by the fact that life is not a cakewalk and that the church is not just getting an easy go of it. This is in our history. It always has been. It always will be from here on forward until Jesus comes back. Opposition is just going to be a reality. And if we can accept that, then we're one step closer to wisdom and peace. There's always going to be opposition. And I believe that the early church did expect it, and it shaped their response. How did they respond? Look with me in verse 5. It says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So facing the loss of a pillar in the church, facing the loss of a friend, still grieving the loss of another, they responded by prayer, by praying earnestly for his release. So the church realized its powerlessness to stand up against Rome, and it didn't make them hang their heads, and it also didn't make them bow up. It made them humble themselves and pray. They couldn't appeal directly to Caesar, so they went over Caesar's head to the throne of God. They couldn't do anything about the hearts of their countrymen and the hostility they were experiencing. So they entrusted themselves to the one who is sovereign over the hearts of men. What about us? When we experience opposition on a day-to-day basis in our own lives, when we see hostility in our culture or in countries across the world, how do you respond to that? How often when we experience a material problem or threat do we think that the solution has to be material? How often do we respond with anger, either towards the culture in some abstract way or towards other people who frankly are just in a condition that we would have been apart from the saving grace of Jesus? How often do we turn into Eeyore? We hang our heads, woe is me, everything's lost, we despair. Church, there's actually a better way. And that way, the early church models it for us as the way of trusting God and submitting to Him in prayer. They prayed earnestly. So, right here in just this short little, I mean, literally a half verse, Luke actually tells us a lot about how the early church prayed. And if we don't want to be like the rest of culture, fluctuating between some kind of self-righteous anger and some kind of woe-is-me mentality, if we actually want to be a people of sober-mindedness, of peace, we have to learn how to pray. So let's see what they tell us about the early church's prayer. The first thing is he said they prayed earnestly. They prayed earnestly. They were up in the middle of the night praying, and I believe that had Peter not been rescued, this church would have continued to pray on through the night. Kevin said last week when he was talking about the importance of prayer, There has never been a revival take place anywhere in the world that was not preceded by fervent prayer. They prayed earnestly. 
Not only that, but they prayed to God. They prayed to God. Now, that seems obvious, but it's so easy to forget this reality, isn't it? Reuben Torrey said this. He said, The day came when I realized what prayer really meant. I realized that prayer was having an audience with God, actually coming into the presence of God and asking and getting things from Him. The realization of that fact transformed my prayer life. Before that, prayer had been a mere duty and sometimes a very irksome duty. But from that time on, prayer has not been merely a duty but a privilege, one of the most highly esteemed privileges of my life. When we fail to remember that we have an audience with God when we pray, prayer becomes burdensome. When we realize that we have an audience with God, prayer moves from duty to delight. They prayed to God. Not only that, but they prayed together. These people were not in separate homes. They're gathered together in the house of Mary praying. Now, as Americans, we tend to think in terms of quantity rather than quality, right? It's just kind of a reality in our, in our consumeristic society. We tend to think quantity more than quality. And so whenever things happen, uh, difficulty at work, difficulty at home, uh, financial trouble, whatever, right? We tend to think, all right, I need to go and recruit as many people as humanly possible and get them to pray because the more prayers that there are, then the better my chances. And there's nothing wrong with recruiting people to pray. That's a very good thing to do. But what I want you to realize is that in the New Testament, we don't see prayer chains being the norm in the early church. We see corporate prayer being the emphasis. The early church prioritized praying together. That was a given for them. This was something they carved out time for, and it was for a reason. James Montgomery Boyce said this way. If we're asking a question, what is it about corporate prayer that's so, that's so uh, beneficial? Why can't I just pray at home? What's the benefit there? He said this, corporate prayer unites the hearts and minds of God's people on a particular matter. In a very special way, praying together unifies us as a church body and changes us individually. Corporate prayer makes a difference. Corporate prayer is what God uses to further his kingdom as well as individual prayers. But corporate prayer is a, is a huge means that God uses to advance his church, further his mission, and bring his purposes into being. When we neglect corporate prayer, we're leaving a blessing and a benefit on the table. And if we can just be honest for a second, if we really believe that, and I'm pointing at myself here, okay? Please hear me say that. Uh, if we really believe that, our church would have more than one prayer meeting with four people in it. If we really believe that, we would actually make our prayer team a priority and it would be busting at the seams. We would have to have more than one prayer meeting going on during the week. But every week, four people gather and pray on a regular basis together. We just don't believe corporate prayer is that important. We think my prayers in the car accomplish enough. I don't need to gather with other people. The early church saw that it was beneficial to gather together. There's something here that we can't accomplish alone. They prayed together. Not only that, they prayed specifically. They prayed specifically. They prayed specifically for Peter's release. It did not make the early church uncomfortable to ask for a particular thing from God. For some reason, right, like in, I guess it's more in the Reformed world, right, where we really don't want to be name it and claim it, 
And so we're very scared of asking God for particular things. Um, I was talking to, to Kelly between services today, and we are talking about why it is that we struggle to pray for specific things. And one thing she pointed out is, well, because as long as we pray safe things, then we still think we have some control. As long as I pray things that I feel like God's going to answer, then this is one more area of my life I can have some control over. The early church was not uncomfortable by praying specific prayers. They went to God and said, God, we want you to release Peter. Are we willing to pray specifically? Now, why don't we pray like this? Not just specifically, but corporately, fervently. I think the main reason why is typically because we know that God is all-knowing and all-powerful, and so therefore we assume, well, God's just going to do what God's going to do. My prayers give me the warm fuzzy, so when I need it, I pray. And when I don't, he's still going to do what he's going to do. The church had a very different view of prayer. Scripture paints a very different view of prayer. To be sure, God is all-knowing and he is all-powerful, but God has ordained it in such a way that he would work through the prayers of his people. Another way of saying that is, there are some things God simply will not do until his church gathers to pray for it. And so in the spirit of James, we can say, there are some things we just simply don't have because we don't ask. We have not because we ask not. Now again, I want to reiterate, we're not teaching a name-it-and-claim-it gospel, nor is the Bible for that matter. And we see that very clearly because it's right there in verse 2 that we hear that Herod's already put James to death. Do we really think the early church didn't gather and pray for the rescue of James? Couldn't God have sent an angel to lead James out of prison so that he wasn't executed? Absolutely. But the reality is, is that God is always going to give us what is very best. Always. Prayer's not twisting God's arm. He is always going to do what is best for us and what most glorifies him. But there are things that we're leaving on the table by not praying for them. And so, let's be a praying church. If we go into the world and all of its opposition and hostility and we think that prayer is merely a, re- a religious formality that has no bearing on, our, on, the, on the reality that we're living in, then we're not going to value prayer very highly and we're going to set ourselves up for disappointment and irritation. Prayer is vital. It's a lifeline. And so, after the church prays, we see right here in verses 16 through 19... We see Peter's miraculous rescue, right? Peter is in prison. He's asleep. I love that, right? Peter's not... It's the night before he's going to be executed. Peter is zonked out. Bright light shines in the cell. An angel walks in, and Peter is out, right? And so the angel has to come and poke Peter on the side, tells him, get up. Chains fall off. And he says, put on your cloak, put on your sandals, follow me. He leads him past guards who are awake on duty walks right by him, out of the prison, out of the city gate, onto a street. And the whole time, Peter, a pillar in the church, thinks this is a vision. And an angel disappears, and Peter realizes, no, God's actually rescued me. And the first thing he does is he goes to the home of Mary. This is the mother of John Mark, who we'll see come up here later on in Acts. And they're gathered there praying, and Peter comes and knocks on the door, and a servant girl in the house named Rhoda comes and answers the door. There's a number of humorous little encounters right here. And Rhoda answers the door, hears that it's Peter, and leaves him outside the door, still locked, to go and tell the other people inside, hey, Peter's here. 
By the way, if you need a good name for a daughter one day, Rhoda. There you go. You're welcome. Um, so they tell her she's out of her mind. She insists, no, it really is Peter. So they come downstairs, find that it really is him. And Peter says, now go back and tell the brothers what God's done. Tell him about my rescue. Tell them about my rescue. And after that, it says that Herod obviously was a little bit hacked off. He had gone to a lot of measures to make sure that this fisherman did not escape. And somehow... He's escaped the prison. And so Herod puts all those soldiers to death. And we'll pick up in verse 20 right here. It says, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace. But because their country depended on the king's country for food, on an anointed day, or appointed day, sorry, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not of man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and was eaten by worms and breathed his last. All right, so I think it's really interesting that Luke begins this chapter of Acts with a show of Herod's power, right? Herod believes that he is ultimately in control of the world and he's doing everything in his might to oppose the church. We get this picture of Herod's presumed autonomy here. And then the chapter ends with a seemingly healthy, relatively young ruler dying in the middle of a speech. I think the lesson there is pretty simple. God simply will not be opposed. He doesn't lose. Ever. There may be periods of time where individuals or groups of individuals appear to be in control, like they've gotten the last laugh, like the, like the hope of the gospel is finally being extinguished, and it never goes out. Jesus is undefeated. Herod did not realize his own mortality. We actually have a, a first century account of Josephus, a historian from first century Jerusalem, tells this story in an independent account. So if you ever want to know, is the Bible trustworthy, is it true? We, we have a whole other account of this happening uh, outside the Bible. And he said that Herod stood up and was wearing a garment made completely out of silver. And so when he steps into the sunlight, he's radiating. He looks glorious, magnificent. And then he speaks in such a way that leads the people to say, the voice of God, not of man. He wanted the glory for himself. He felt like he deserved all of their praise. And God humbled him in the ultimate way. God is not opposed. His purposes are not thwarted. He does not fail. This means that his church will endure. His glory will reach the ends of the earth. He will be glorified. The lost will be saved. He will reign forever. Now, and this is just sort of in closing here. If that's the case, and it is, uh, why does that not excite us more? I think that's a question we have to ask, right? Um, we think about God being in control. We think about his gospel reaching the ends of the earth. We think about his kingdom expanding, uh, never being stopped. And yet typically when we hear that, we go, all right, yeah, I get that. But what about my job? What about my 401k? What about this issue I'm having with my kids? But, 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 you know, what? And, and I think the reason why is because those things just simply matter more to us than the growth of his kingdom. 
We are uh, exactly what Jesus described in Matthew 6 when he said, you're distracted by many things rather than seeking my kingdom. That's us. Right? Like at any given day, that's me. That's you. So the question is, all right, well, if that is me, if the growth and endurance and perseverance of God's kingdom, the spread of his glory, if that doesn't excite me like it should, what do I do? Point you back to point number two, that we pray. Uh, When we get together with God's people, first of all, you can ask God, hey, this is where my heart's at. Will you change it? And that's a prayer that I think he delights in answering. Um, But not only that, when we get together with other believers and we get to pray kingdom-minded prayers, it's one of the beautiful things about this, uh, this prayer time we have every Sunday before the sermon is that we're getting our eyes off of us and even off of our country and looking globally at what God's doing. We're praying kingdom-minded prayers that just don't come naturally to us because they're not self-serving. When we do that, we're actually training our minds. God's Spirit is training us and shaping us and molding us so that we care about the glory of God more than we care about our comfort. Here's the thing. Our comfort is going to be shaken We are going to be inconvenienced. We are going to face hostility in some shape, form, or fashion. The only unshakable thing we can bank on is the glory of God and the advance of his kingdom. And so let's pray that he would do that in us. And lastly, I'm going to close with this thought as we make our way to the Lord's Supper and the communion table. If you are disheartened by the distractions in your heart, your lack of love for the glory of God, seeing His name made much of. My final encouragement to you is this. If we, if we have already stated and believe wholeheartedly that God is in control, He is greater than Satan, He is greater than sin, anything out there that opposes Him, He's greater. The really good news is, He's also greater than any sin in here. Uh, God simply is not going to be foiled by my sin. Any idols I have in my heart, any distractions I have, they don't make God tremble or go, gosh, I'm just not sure how I'm going to deal with that. He who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it. He does that in our hearts. And let's pray that he does it in our country and in our world because that's exactly what the promise of the gospel is. Jesus' gospel will go forth. Dead people will be brought to life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You have overcome death, you've overcome sin, you've overcome Satan. Lord, none of those things have the final word anymore. But Lord, we acknowledge before you humbly that, Lord, quite frankly, your glory is not the thing that's most exciting to us. It's not our primary concern. Lord, we need your spirit to come and shape us so that we find our greatest comfort, our greatest joy, in your kingdom that marches forth, unopposed, without fail. Lord, would you make us a praying people? Would you make us a people that aren't shaken in the face of opposition, but people that have their expectations rightly set by your word and march confidently forward, knowing who our king is and knowing who's in control? Lord, we love you. We ask it all in your name. Amen. Usually when we come to the table, I'm actually standing at the table, but so that the folks on live stream can at least hear my voice.
I'm going to stand up here at the pulpit. Uh, you may want to go ahead, if you've got a communion cup, start working on your wafer flap, because uh, it can be kind of tricky. It's a beautiful thing that God gives us. Not only do we have His grace in the Word, but we actually have uh, His grace in the sacrament of bread and the cup, uh, grace that we can touch and taste, uh, grace that reminds us that this is, this is but a foretaste. And now, you know, it seems like a pretty inadequate foretaste, uh, prepackaged wafer and juice, but it's a foretaste of the feast to come in the kingdom. It's a foretaste of the moment when we will be all gathered around Jesus' table with the whole cloud of witnesses. Uh, those that we just read about in Jerusalem uh, and those who have uh, followed them and preceded us, we will be gathered all together, every, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation around uh, the Lamb's table, uh, and we will rejoice together. So this is a foretaste of that. It, it points us forward. Uh, but it's also a reminder of what has made that moment possible, uh, and that is the sacrifice of Jesus, that when I put the bread on my tongue, I'm reminded of his body uh, crucified for me. Uh, when I uh, put the, the juice in my mouth, I'm reminded of the blood, the perfect blood that was shed for me, that ransomed me from sin and death and hell. And so as we come to the table this morning, I invite every one of you who is a follower of Jesus, who's made a profession of faith, who has said, yes, I'm trusting in I am at peace with God through Jesus, and I'm at peace with my brothers and sisters in the faith. I am, I am living repentantly before God by his grace. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to read some words from 1 Corinthians 11, and as I do, we'll take the, the supper together. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for this means of grace, and pray, Lord, that you would use it uh, in that mysterious and spiritual way to strengthen us and nourish us uh, for the road ahead. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul writes these words uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 23, he says, I received from the Lord uh, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. In the same way also, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The blood of the Lord Jesus. Take and drink. Let's pray again. Father, thank you for this means of grace, Lord, we thank you for working in us that which is pleasing in you. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and respond to God's grace to us. We're going to sing the doxology together. Also, if you are giving this morning, um, 
I remind you of the Deacons Fund, uh, and as well as just church in general, those offering plates are out in the gathering area. Let's sing the doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Receive God's blessing. May grace mercy and peace from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit be and abide with each one of you. And God's people said, Amen.